Another week of dueling news conferences, letter writing, and accusations. And the legislature doesn't even sit till next week. Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer join me to break it all down. And then we talk to BCTF President Glenn Hansman and finish off with political observer Lila Ewell. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. For Kamloops Computer Center, here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome to Inside Politics on Radio NL here in the beautiful Kamloops area. Blue skies, sunshine, a beautiful day to talk politics. Joining me on the line to dive into all the news from another interesting week are Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Gentlemen, welcome. Good morning, Jane. Uh, guys, uh, we had a lot of words and accusations flying around, revolving around uh, the speaker position, uh, parliamentary procedure. Uh, Andrew Weaver, John Horgan, led it off with a suddenly called news conference to try and calm some troubled waters. That was followed by Mike DeYoung for the Liberals. So off the top, uh, what can we divine about what's about to happen from this week's war of words? Keith? Well, <laughs> I thought this was going to be a quiet week, anything but. Uh, yeah, so we started off with this very strange uh, encounter between Weaver, Horgan, and the press gallery, where ostensibly <clears throat> they held a news conference to show that they were a stable um, sort of alliance ready to govern, and they sh- showed anything except stability. Weaver went off uh, sort of on a, on, a, on a tangent saying it was a constitutional crisis that the fact that the B.C. liberals would not allow one of their members to stand as speaker uh, should they form government. And John Horgan actually had to step in and cut him off and say, no, it's not a constitutional crisis. Uh, he called it a, a matter of character. Uh, so you had Horgan trying to calm Weaver down, Weaver trying to uh, suggest that this whole thing was a, was a gigantic constitutional crisis. At the end of the day, uh, Mike Farnworth, I think, has provided some, some uh, clarity and some calm here by saying, yes, they'll put up a speaker. It'll be very hard to govern at a 44-43 uh, margin, with, and with the speaker in the chair, it's going to be 43-43, and the speaker will break the... Uh, I tell you, I don't think we've ever seen as much attention focused on the speaker position and mike DeYoung yesterday finally provided some formal clarification that indeed when the when the house resumes sitting on thursday the liberals will have a speaker in the chair from their ranks but that person will then resign when the confidence after the confidence vote and the liberals fall and it will be up to the ndp and the greens to put a speaker and then we're off to the races now, Vaughn, what did you think about this whole situation where both Andrew Weaver and John Horgan seemed to say, hey, listen, if you're going to appoint a speaker, it's got to be the, four, the four-year term according to convention, which doesn't appear uh, to be so much the case. No, it's a ri- frankly a ridiculous idea. <laughs> the, the duty of the opposition is to oppose. Opposition parties do not provide speakers to governments to prop up governments. The New Democrats are not going to supply a speaker to the Liberals when they sit next week, and when the Liberals become opposition, they're not going to give lend one of their members to the NDP to help them. Uh, I mean, it, it's kind of amusing to see the New Democrats and the Greens, who just ran an election campaign, calling Christy Clark a corrupt liar who couldn't be trusted on anything, to then turn around and say, oh, and by the way, will you lend us one of your members to serve as a speaker? Be nice, right? <laughs> it, 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 it just doesn't work. So, but, you know, the interesting thing about it, Shane, is what really came out this week, and it came out in an interview that Weaver gave to Mike Smith of the province newspaper, where, where Weaver told Smith that during the period when he was negotiating the deal with the NDP, that the NDP led him to think that they could deliver a liberal, that one of the liberals would serve as speaker 
to help out an NDP government. And Weaver thought that was the case. He didn't get it in writing. He didn't get it as part of the deal. But what that tells us is that Weaver realized this was going to be a very difficult relationship to manage. It Mathematically, would have been easier for the Greens to work with the Liberals, because Greens plus Liberals is 46, mm. and the NDP has 41. So Weaver knew going in that the deal with the NDP was going to be tough to manage in the House. He was looking at options. He thought the NDP was going to be, a, be able to deliver a liberal. He thought they could get away with changing the rules of the House. And I think what we're really seeing this week is the, uh, the reality check for the Green-NDP partnership, that even they realize it's going to be tough to make this thing work. You know, you know we've... BC's never had a speaker from the opposition benches. That's never happened yeah. in, our, in our history. There have been opposition speakers <coughs> in other parliaments, but we've never, to my knowledge, and checking again with the clerks yesterday, other scholars, there's never been a case where a speaker from the opposition has been so closely aligned with the survival of the government, which would be the case here if the Liberals were to put up a speaker. Uh, the, the, the survival of the government could very well depend on the support of an opposition speaker. So <clears throat> we haven't had that situation in the British, in the Westminster Parliament uh, system, and that's why one big reason why the Liberals are balking. The other thing is, this is bare-knuckle B.C. politics. You know, it's not the Marquis of Queensbury rules here. <laughs> Uh, it's a it's a blood sport. It always has been. It's an adversarial system, uh, and it's we've thrived as a result of that. And so this these kumbaya moments that the Green Party keep advocating for, and these group hugs, that's not part of our system. I don't think they ever will be. One thing that does that I think is pretty blatantly obvious to me, though, is when the Liberals do put up a speaker for as short a time as we think it's going to happen. Uh, I don't I don't think there's any question that 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 person is going to be lobbied hard by both the NDP and the Greens to stay in that position from whatever that comes of that. Well, they can lobby away, but, you know, you know how deeply polarized B.C. politics oh, are. People don't cross the floor here very often. It's pretty rare. Are you going to cross the floor, sell out your colleagues, your family, and your friends for a government that might only survive a few weeks? I mean, it, it, it's just... I don't even see the logic of it. I, I don't think Christy Clark had to tell all of her members, don't you dare do this. I think all the liberals sat down and went, why would I cast my lot in with this thing that may not survive? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure the same logic went through on the NDP side. We know that you know, all the liberals could have attracted a floor crosser from the NDP. They would be in a much secure position. But I don't think anybody from the NDP was going to go to the Liberals, not after 16 years in opposition of hating them. You're not going to suddenly throw in with them when it's this precarious. Yeah, we see four crossing occasionally at the federal level, but I agree with Vaughn. The differences between the B.C. Liberals and the NDP are much more profound, I think. The differences between, the, say, the federal liberals and the federal conservatives. I mean, this is a polarized province, and one side does not talk to the other, and one side certainly does not cooperate with the other. One of the things as I was sitting back and watching this all unfold uh, in the back of my head as I was kind of you know letting it all sift through was uh, I think the past week was a win for Premier Christy Clark and the fact that here she is, she's lost her majority. Uh, she should be in any stretch of, uh, in some kind of a tenuous position and on the hot seat, but instead she is, she's not. And it's Andrew Weaver and John Horgan who are suddenly calling news conferences to calm troubled waters. Well, yeah, I mean... I, I think the liberals obviously are going to have to work on their humility, <laughs> and but you're starting to hear from them the recognition that 
you know, they are headed into opposition. I mean, when Mike DeYoung showed up at that press conference yesterday with a copy of the standing orders of the legislature and all that, well, the legislature is there for the opposition. It's not there for the government. The liberals weren't all that keen to have the House sit when they were in government. Uh, they scrubbed many a fall session. So I think you're starting to hear that, you know, they're accepting the inevitable. When they say the NDP will have to put up a speaker, they're conceding that the NDP is going to be government. So uh, I, I agree with you that what really looked shaky this week was, was first of all, the weaver Horgan partnership. How mm-hmm. long is that going to be friendly? And the other thing is, I think Andrew Weaver is overplaying his hand. I think he is doing too much of this tail wags dog stuff. I think the NDP's patience is probably running out with him, and maybe the public as well. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> Weaver's. Um, yeah, some, some of his assertions were somewhat uh, factually challenged, like his notion that uh, the the Constitution or the law states that a speaker must serve out their entire term once they're elected to that position. That's absurd. I mean, B.C., Vaughn and I have been here, and we actually pointed out to him, well, actually, six speakers in, since the Socrates have resigned in midterm, including three under the NDP. Three in, a, in just a, a matter of, some of them just served a, a year. So mm. uh, speakers resign from time to time for various reasons, and the, most of them are all poli- politically uh, oriented reasons, as this one will be. Uh, so his notion that somehow the law stipulates that the speaker can't resign is complete nonsense. Uh, it is done for political political reasons. And also the fact that, uh, again, ignoring the fact that B.C. has never had an, a speaker from the opposition ranks. Uh, other jurisdictions have, but not in British Columbia. Yeah, I, it struck me, too, one of the things that he said was, uh, in his, his outrage directed it to Christy Clark, you know, in her... Uh, basically with the whole constitutional crisis thing and how dare she, in, you know, direct her MLAs to either not stand for the job or resign once her government falls. Uh, I know that he has said at least twice, including on this show, that he has directed his green MLAs not to stand for the job, which is an interesting dichotomy. Well, I pointed out to him, do you really think that Gordon Campbell had no, played no role in determining who speaker was for 12, 11 years under his rule? I mean, uh, he was the ultimate control freak in the in the corner office, and he had a very big say in the fact that Bill Beresoff was the speaker in the B.C. legislature for a number of years. So, uh, again, I think Andrew Weaver spends probably not enough time. He's studying, he spends a lot of time studying climate science, but not enough time studying politics. All right. Now, what about this accusation? And I think uh, both of you gentlemen would, would know, uh, as far as uh, John Horgan and Andrew Weaver go, this accusation that there's some kind of delay, there's some kind of obfuscation of, of getting the legislature sitting and the whole sort of post-election procedural stuff. Uh, any, any meat to the bone there or no? Well, I, I mean, I think there's a legitimate concern, but some things happen. So we didn't we didn't really know until the 30th of May who was going to be the government. That was the day that the NDP and the Greens laid out the terms of their agreement. And the, the, the writ certifying the return of all the members was signed the next day. So, so to the end of May, the delay was because the voters in their wisdom hadn't really made clear who they wanted for a government. Uh, so the next week... The, the MLAs were all sworn in, and usually that is the first thing you do after an election. Normally it happens very quickly, but because of the long delay, it didn't. So when the House sits on the 22nd of July, um, it will only be three weeks since we knew who was going to be the government. There is a couple of oddities about the fact that it's sitting on the 22nd, which is Thursday, 
optimum would have been the Monday of that week, but I gather the lieutenant governor had previously scheduled vacation or family time or something. She wasn't available on the Monday and the Tuesday. And on the Wednesday, it's National Aboriginal Day, and the government was not going to have the House sit on National Aboriginal Day. So there's, there's some of it. Some of the delay is because of what happened with the election. Some of it is because of circumstance. Having said that, I don't think the Liberals are in any rush to get this over with, but some of the delay is understandable. Uh, Keith, before we go to the break, your thoughts on that? Well, I think we probably, I think they're, even uh, DeYoung yesterday acknowledged they're probably, it's a week later than it uh, normally would be, but, uh, you know, he, he trotted out some stats yesterday uh, of her, uh, comparing last May elections in BC history. This is basically the time when the House generally returns. I think maybe out by a week compared to previous uh, previous elections. But it's not extraordinary that we have this type of gap because again, the the, the result of the election actually wasn't known until well after May nine. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's take a quick break. Uh, we get more to chat about with uh, Keith and Vaughn uh, on Inside Politics here on Radio NL right after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Uh, guys, last week we had Bill Bennett on the show. Vaughn, uh, you let off with questions asking him if there's any chance to delay on evicting those two families, the Boons, one of them, uh, to get the site C construction done. Uh, he basically, and I don't know if you disagree, but I inferred out of his response that there was no more room to move on that, yet Christy Clark has given them a reprieve until July 15th. Uh, anything you can read into that? Yeah, that's the right move. <laughs> no, they were, they were. The eviction was going to happen on the thirtieth of June. Now that date was set in May. It was a second extension, but when it was set, they didn't know that like the government is probably going to fall on the twenty ninth of June, which is the day we now expect it. So you were going to have the evictions taking place in the transition from between one premier and another. Uh, I it's just it was just not a good idea. So Clark has um, sent a letter to Hydro basically saying, look. Uh, put it off till the 15th of July. Uh, there is time for a bit of a work around there. They can do some work on the site without actually starting to move the house. And by the 15th of July, it'll be Premier John Horgan's call whether he wants to do a further extension or not, and that's as it should be. So it's a good call by the government. They could have done it a little while ago. As you know, Shane, it took, what, an exchange of about six or seven letters mm. to get to this point, but finally we got the right call. It's going to be fascinating to see what Horgan's call is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, if there is if there is no movement, uh, that stands down. I think a lot of that realignment work, and there will be added costs to the project. I still think, in the back of his mind, Horgan doesn't want <clears throat> this project to die because he doesn't want to be the guy to hand out twenty two hundred pink slips to workers. That could soon become an albatross around his neck. Uh, and every issue is precious to the NDP forming government because an election could occur relatively quickly, mm-hmm. and any baggage they start accumulating uh, is going to wear on them very heavily uh, in the short term. And uh, suddenly, you know, canceling a project of that magnitude, as much as it may appease the environmental lobby, uh, is not going to go over well with a lot of other people. I'm curious what you guys thought of the BCUC release uh, that was pushed out yesterday, uh, where they said they're ready and willing to tackle a review of this thing. However, nowhere in there is a six week. Uh, review time limit mentioned. Rather, they say, uh, depending on the term of reference, will dictate the timeline. Vaughn? A uh, very good point. The BCUC, the reason that the New Democrats wanted this thing to go to 
the BCUC when the NDP was in opposition and the Liberals were in government is because the Utilities Commission is an independent tribunal. They get to decide. They, they can accept assignments from the government. They can accept deadlines from the government to answer questions. But ultimately, they're independent, and what I saw and what they said yesterday is it may take a little longer than that. There was a reference in there to the degree to which we should consult the public. Well, are the New Democrats and the Greens seriously suggesting that a decision of this magnitude should be made without, for instance, consulting the six First Nations bands who've signed benefit-sharing agreements on that project. It's not just the workers and the communities that are affected. The honor of the Crown is involved in this because six First Nations bands actually support this project and have signed agreements to give themselves tens of millions of dollars worth of benefits from it going ahead. Yeah, I, I wonder if it's even more than tens of millions of dollars. Hydro will not release how much money they have agreed to compensate uh, First Nations and local communities, but I suspect it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, as part of that $4 billion price tag that's mm. uh, sitting there right now. Uh, we're getting close to the bottom of the hour, and I know you guys have to go. I had one quick question I wanted to ask, because I'm curious uh, what your thoughts are on this. Uh, depending on how this all shakes out, uh, is it a foregone conclusion now that the lieutenant governor will ask John Horgan uh, to govern based on his agreement with Andrew Weaver, or has there been anything in this last week or so that could or should influence her decision to say this is untenable, perhaps now we should go to an election? Is, is there any, any meat to the bone there? I think very unlikely, Shane. I think the lieutenant governor will decide to give it a chance. If it's going to fail, let it fail in the legislature where the public can see it, not take that onto your head to say ahead of time that it can't work. Keith? I think there, I think there's a possibility she may dissolve the House, but I think it's very unlikely. Uh, I think she's being advised. Uh, David Johnson, she's given advice from David Johnson, the Governor General, who's a constitutional scholar. I would be surprised if Johnson was advi- would advise her to dissolve the House before testing it uh, with uh, the Green NDP alliance. But it is a possibility. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing I wanted to get by you guys real quick here is the sudden turnaround. Sam Sullivan already indicating the government's going to move away from this referendum on transit funding down in Metro Vancouver, something that I thought was a bad idea in 2013, and I was surprised they stuck with it uh, in this provincial election campaign. But uh, it sounds like uh, the election result has finally driven a point home. Yeah, they lost nine seats in Metro Vancouver. That's where they lost the election and, uh, well, almost lost the election. Mm-hmm. And that's where, uh, you know, clearly the Liberals have got a, a road back to patch things up in Metro, and that's the first step in that direction. And that throne speech next Thursday is going to be full of turnarounds <laughs> and policy reversals. Uh, they're going to be incorporating a whole bunch of things they turned their backs on in the past uh, to win back those voters in suburban uh, Metro Vancouver. I'm curious to see if John Horgan adapts a similar wow. sort of uh, winning back in, in the interior north of the province I don't as well. think that's a tough, yes. that's a tough one for him. Uh, by, by basically kiboshing Site C and Kinder Morgan, uh, that is symbolic and, uh, and real, I think, evidence that, that the NDP <coughs> has decided to go all in with the environmental movement. And it's going to be very hard for them to win those seats back outside of Metro. So, again, we've got this rural-urban divide that's become, was cer- certainly exposed in 2013. It's become even more entrenched right now. Last word to you, Vaughn. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, I think, though, that's one reason why he may not cancel Site C, why he may decide to let it go ahead and take the heat from his environmental allies. 
Excellent. Uh, gentlemen, always appreciate it. Uh, I'm on holidays uh, as of next week, uh, so you guys get uh, my guest host, Terry Lake. Oh, and, fun. Uh, <laughs> I'll see you guys when I get back, and I'm uh, I'm going to be dying a little inside as I'm away because I've chosen the worst possible time to take a holiday. <laughs> it's going to be a lot going Good on. holiday. Uh, gentlemen, appreciate it. Uh, thank you again, and I'll see you when I get back. Bye-bye. There we go. There's Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer uh, with their insight into what has been another interesting week here in BC politics. We're going to take a quick break and get you caught up to the news at the bottom of the hour with Bob Price on the other side, a discussion about education with BCTF President Glenn Hansman. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Well, I had a chance to chat with BC Teachers Federation President Glenn Hansman this week to talk about a range of education issues. This is school districts tackle implementing the restored class size and composition language per the landmark agreement reached in the aftermath of that 15-year-long legal battle with the province that resulted in the fastest Supreme Court of Canada decision ever siding with the teachers union. Let's take a listen. As you know, Kamloops School District uh, is dealing with lead in the, in the drinking water issues here. Uh, they have decided to flush the water systems in every school each morning because they're finding the lead concentrations higher in the morning than in the afternoon. Uh, and then long term, they're going to start looking at possibly replacing pipes. So that's going to be a costly and lengthy process. So uh, Kamloops aside, province-wide, I know that's a problem out there, but uh, give, paint me a picture. How serious a problem is this? Well, this issue really started coming up uh, this time last year. Parents and some of our members in Prince Rupert area were flagging us as a problem. And uh, since then, it's come up in Victoria, in Richmond, uh, Vancouver. There's lots of places around the province with schools that were built in the 20s, 30s, and 40s that were using lead pipes, and those schools are still in use. And... Um, Replacing all those obviously will take some capital investment, but the uh, the short-term solution seems to be doing daily flushing of the pipes. And whether that's sort of a sustainable uh, way of going about this, it doesn't really provide all that much reassurance to parents and to students. In the school. So what's the government's role here, Glenn? Uh, and I know we're in a bit of a, a, an unstable situation at the moment, but ideally, what's the government's role in, in working with and uh, acting all this pipe replacement? Because I'm sure that we all care enough about the kids to move on this thing. Well, it's part of the overall sort of concern that we've had around making sure that school districts get enough money to do uh, not just new school construction, but repairs to their facilities, uh, roofs, getting rid of asbestos, getting rid of mold, uh, getting vermin out of schools. There's all sorts of stuff that plays itself out. But, you know, short of replacing all the lead pipes in the school building to ensure that uh, drinking water is safe, um, there are other solutions in terms of making sure that even just in an isolated spot of the building, there are dependable sources of drinking water for students that wouldn't necessarily mean replacing every and all pipes in the school. And so I'm sure there's some creative ways of doing this that, yes, will cost some money, um, but uh, will mean that it's a lot more dependable in the long run um, than just expecting someone on staff at the school to remember to flush the pipes every single morning. Is this a, financially, is this on the, the, the province, Glenn, or is this sort of a split with the school system? How, how do you see that working? I think, no, it, it, there needs to be a provincial uh, role in this because a lot of the maintenance that school districts normally would do, including pipe replacement, along with painting and um, all sorts of other things, is really fettered by the funding envelope that they've been getting over the past 16 years from the provincial government. And so we've been um, 
not the only organization the trustees have and, and other groups too calling for improved education funding on the operational side, but also on the capital side to make sure that that sort of stuff can get done in a fairly expeditious um, manner. And uh, I want to give kudos to uh, um, MLAs like Jennifer Rice in the Rupert area, who uh, really uh, quite consistently raised this in the ledge last year um, and, and got rebuffed somewhat in the responses during question periods. Um, you know, of course, school districts have been, the ministry has done a positive move in terms of uh, putting in some more consistent guidelines uh, for school districts in terms of doing the flushing and doing inspections and things like that. But what is the longer-term, uh, short-term solution and a longer-term solution for this problem going to be? Health-wise, I don't think, I'm not aware of any instances where this has been proven to have been linked to some kind of a health problem with any student. But I guess the nightmare scenario here is is if, if it does at some point in time and then the questions immediately go, well, why didn't we do something sooner? Yes, absolutely. And, and also... These are things that might not show up until later in someone's life. And so if, uh, if someone was consuming this contaminated water as a student and then cumulatively over a period of years, um, maybe the problem shows up in adulthood or when they're senior and uh, and no one would want that either. Just the current situation, I know I talked to Mike Bernier the other day uh, who was telling me that uh, school districts have access to funding. There are mechanisms put in place, especially with the fund to hire teachers prior to the election that allow for some flexibility and, and, and certainty for the education system. Is that your opinion right now or no? Well, I think school districts would probably say to the contrary. I mean, I, I know... Um, Minister Bernier and other government representatives have uh, consistently used the terminology of fully funding the agreement, but they seem to be doing so um, by leaning on school districts to make cuts in other areas. So rather than use the method that uh, we would prefer, sort of leave all the existing staffing in place, whether it be a, uh, a education assistant or one of our members or even a principal and vice principal role and look for where the gaps are relative to the restored language, fill those holes. Um, instead, um, the methodology being used seems to be to kind of uh, take from elsewhere to fill, from, uh, fill some of the holes. And that's not satisfactory. The frontline services that are in schools this year are still going to be needed by the same kids next year. We just want to make sure that we address some of the gaps that are there. And so it's part of the, the conversation that we'll need to be having with um, whoever, <laughs> however things shake down um, provincially over the next few weeks. Um, we're going to be around during the summer to be having conversations with politicians and trustees as well, because we're determined to make sure that September 2016, uh, 2017 is the most stable school startup that we've had in a long time. But it's just, there's a disconnect between what the public messaging is provincially from the provincial government and what our uh, members are experiencing in schools and what we're seeing play out um, through school board budgeting right now and, and the hiring that's supposed to be happening. So that doesn't mean that we can't uh, further ameliorate the situation in September um, and do some more staffing when the time comes, but uh, it's uh, getting awfully close to the end of the school year still to have a lot of uncertainty hanging over people's heads. 
So, I mean, I know that this is not an ideal situation. I mean, the campaign began in April. We had the election. We're still sort of trying to sort it out. Uh, and then we could have a government fall pretty quickly and then a new government come in, which is going to have to take its own time to get all of its dominoes in place. Uh, and this is all covering the period that schools are tackling this whole new world of restoring the old language of class size and composition. Is your concern here that there's no real firm direction from Victoria and, and won't be until it's too late? Well, uh, too late maybe September. Um, it, it, we would have preferred that all the staffing, all of it uh, done on restoration of the language without taking away other positions could all get done in May and June this school year. And so when we start in September, everything is as it should be. Um, but, you know, if we have to do a bit of reorganizing in those first couple weeks of September, do some more hiring then, um, it's not the end of the world, but it's just unfortunate. The timing is really unfortunate because um, with all the delay tactics that... Um, Premier Clark is utilizing right now, uh, the clock is ticking on the end of the school year. And so, you know, hiring people, uh, getting staff together so that they can plan out who has what class, what students go into them. Are we able to run this particular secondary school course or not based on the number of staff people and based on the number of students? That's all work that we do now. Um, and we're also, if we're having to recruit people from out of province, we also don't want to miss the opportunity. Um, if, uh, you know, people who are in Ontario or Manitoba or Alberta who'd be willing to move out here in anticipation of a job in September. Well, if we're already into a new school year, they might have been hired elsewhere. And so we're, we're from a recruitment and retention standpoint, too, uh, the timing is really unfortunate as well. And so um, you know, this is no disrespect to the, um, the staff that work in the Ministry of Education or people in school districts who are also scrambling and scratching their heads, wondering what to do, and a bit frustrated by the situation. There needs to be um, a different uh, set of political directions given by somebody um, in Victoria sooner rather than later. All right. Now, my last question before I let you go is uh, on the class size and composition thing. I know there's some disagreements uh, here and there around the province. Uh, what's your opinion as you look at the various school districts' attempts to implement uh, these new sort of landscape changes and new rules? There are some places in the province that are going really well. Um, Danich, Souk, Cabell River, uh, Prince George, just to name a few, um, where uh, everything seems to be working quite harmoniously and uh, jobs are getting filled. Um, uh, or school organization for next year uh, seems to be in compliance with the language that's being restored for the most part. You know, there's always going to be a few a little disagreements. That's to be expected uh, when you're dealing with some language that hasn't been in place for a long time. Uh, but then we have some other uh, situations like in, in Surrey and, and Vancouver and uh, where there's some more major disagreements around what the language means. And then places like Victoria where... Um, there are some schools that are presently closed, which uh, are local anyway, fields should be reopened in order to accommodate the necessary space. And uh, uh, management here in Victoria seems uh, reluctant to move ahead with that. Um, unlike Prince George, which uh, announced uh, a couple months ago that they were going to reopen the school and have rejigged all their school boundaries for next fall and didn't seem to have a problem doing that. So we'll see how it all comes out on the wash in the fall. Um, I know some of the problems that are happening in school districts are because of the uncertainty around the funding. Um, some uh, relate to interpreting old language, um, but with the right funding envelope and um, 
and rolling up our sleeves with um, whoever forms government um, in the weeks ahead. Hopefully, we can get this all sorted out and uh, we get all those frontline services in place for kids and uh, youth in the fall. Thanks, uh, Glenn. Appreciate it, as always. Okay, take care. And that was BCTF President Glenn Hansman. Next on Inside Politics, we'll talk to political observer and blogger Lila Ewell right after this break on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Thank you for taking time to listen to Inside Politics here on Radio NL. We always appreciate that beautiful day out there. Time to talk more politics with political observer and blogger Lila Ewell. Lila, welcome. Good morning, Shane. How are you doing? I am well. It occurs to me that uh, you and I have kind of known each other for for, uh, a number of years now. Um, But I was racking my brain. I think this might be the first time you and I have ever spoken, though. Uh, I think we did once years ago. On did we? Okay. W, but not since you've been up in Kamloops and uh, <laughs> you've been doing good work up there. Well, thank you. Uh, how are you enjoying your move from Surrey to the island? Absolutely loving it. And I'll tell you something, I never would have anticipated it would have become such a political uh, hot spot in the province in this nah. election. But wow, it's been interesting. Yeah, you will move from uh, the political hotbed of Surrey to the one riding that was won by nine votes on election night, sparking probably the most eyes in the province, which must have been fascinating. It was, and I think uh, for a small town like the Comox Valley, made of Comox and Courtney, um, no one else expected it either. I think it was totally a very surprised situation and very indicative of what we saw across the province in our current election results right now. Well, let's talk about that, because I know that uh, you keep an eye on these things and you do some great work uh, online uh, with your thoughts and observations of uh, the political situation. I do want to get into Site C, because I know that uh, you've delved into that, uh, done a deep dive uh, over a number of years. But first off, uh, what's your thoughts on sort of this current situation we find ourselves in? Well, you know, it's interesting. There has been so much drama online and newspapers across the coverage. You know, the sky is falling. Look what's happened to our province. It's the beginning of political ruination. And um, it's really quite unbelievable. And I think that a lot of people are making a lot out of nothing, to be honest. We haven't had the legislature recalled yet. We know what date it's coming. It was ridiculous for anybody to expect that the Liberals would keep a speaker in the House beyond the confidence vote. I don't know why anybody thought that that might happen. Um, because after all, you know, they're, they're more than likely going to lose that confidence vote, and why would they make it any easier for an incoming government mm. to, uh, to take that over? So I've sort of been really staying out of that because I really think it's a bit of a non-issue until the House actually is recalled and we do see what exactly happens then. Yeah, it's interesting because I see two distinct sort of lines of narrative from each side of the political spectrum as we go into this thing. And one, uh, obviously, from the, from the NDP uh, green side of the equation, this whole thing about how there's a delay and uh, the Liberals need to get out of the way and they're being obstructionist. And the other narrative from the other side is this is an untenable situation. How is this ever going to last? Well, yada, 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 with some of a good, healthy shake of fear-mongering. you see that as well or no? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I've seen everything. Like, people are talking about, oh, my God, you know, the NDP aren't going to pay for anything. It's the 90s all over. Jobs gone. You know, buy, spend, and debt. And I'm looking at this, and I'm going, okay, you're freaking out about a $10 a day daycare plan, which I have questions about, too. But you're totally fine with the province going ahead and spending $9 billion plus on a dam that hasn't even been reviewed independently. Yeah. And it, it kind of like, people are like, 
hmm, there's not even a response to that, you know, because how do you respond to that? You just, like, everybody needs to calm down. It's an extraordinary situation we're in, yes. But we need to recall the House. I suspect that, as Mike DeYoung said yesterday, that they're going to drag it out. We will have some debate. They're going to try and push this through. And the question is, why is this delay happening? He claims that this is fine, that this is, you know, no earlier or no later than any other date. But we have critical infrastructure projects on board right now. We know that those projects are threatened. We have the Massey Bridge. We have Site C. We have Kinder Morgan. Right now, Site C is sort of the hotbed issue, and the reason why is there was anticipated very large contracts coming up to be signed on or before July 1st, and this government date, if they delay by debating whatever they think they need to debate for 10 days, um, will push it to that time period. Now, interestingly enough, I spoke with a lawyer online last night who said that any contract signed during this time period would be easily challenged regardless because it is a change in government and really you can't sign a contract in good faith regardless. So I'm not so worried about that. But I do do think it's interesting and I'm wondering what's going on during this 10 days. How many other contracts are being signed? How many other things are being put through that the public may not be aware about until it's much too late? Yeah, it is an interesting question. And the other, the converse side of that is what isn't being done in the middle of a caretaker government. I've already talked to uh, one of the mayors in Quinell, Bob Simpson, who's saying that uh, a lot of projects municipally uh, in his community and others surround it, uh, highways projects, hospital projects, et cetera, are grinding to a halt because essentially the money taps in Victoria uh, aren't being turned on until this whole thing settles itself out, which is another side to the equation as well. Exactly. And yet I think we saw there was a, an article online I saw that money had somehow gotten out for or a grant had been given for a training facility for the White Cap. I don't know the entire story on that. So it seems to be there's money here, there's not money there, but there is a lot of instability. And I think the sooner that they get the house back in and the sooner that they get down to business, you know, the, the better it'll be for everybody. If I were the NDP in the Greens, and I know they don't always listen to me or what I think is going on, but, you know, it was brought up last night, the situation is, well, if the, the Liberals want to debate issues or housekeeping, as they call it, for 10 days, what happens if the NDP and Greens just sit there and don't debate anything at all? Yeah. Yeah, it's an intro, or that they could get deadlocked on the speaker position for days on end if somebody decides to dig in their heels there as well. Exactly. Uh, I want to talk a little more about Site C. We only have a few minutes left, and I, I know you've done uh, an unbelievable amount of work on this, and uh, the parallels between Site C and Muskrat Falls is something that you keep digging into. Uh, what What is concerning there that has you concerned here? Well, the parallels are striking, actually, and I think um, when people actually really look into that story, and I've done a couple stories on it as well as Desmog has done that as well, in Newfoundland, Labrador, they pushed through the SAM project, and during an election, Dwight Ball actually campaigned against the project and won the election. Uh, the people of Newfoundland, Labrador assumed that that meant that the dam would stop. He did not stop the dam. He continued the dam project. And midway, they were like three-quarters of completion, and they had to have an independent review because the cost had spiraled so far out of control. There was all sorts of geotechnical issues during the review process there, um, the company, their hydro company, Nalcor, had not presented the regulator with all the information they required as well, so they were not able to make a proper situation. So we have parallels in the review. We have parallels in the geotechnical. We have parallels in the political situation now with the change in government. Um, they have really gotten to the point now where they admitted last summer the CEO of their hydro company said, our figures were wrong, our estimates were off, 
we should never have built this project. It's a complete boondoggle. We admit it, but here we are. And they ended up having to go to the feds, and the feds had to underwrite guarantees for the debt associated with that project. And right now they're still experiencing a lot of people, you know, now that they know. They know that they were right the entire time. Um, they've opposed this project, and, and yet they're still stuck with this monster that's really going to leave a horrible legacy project. We see that here in BC with St. C with the lack of reviews. We see that here, <coughs> excuse me, with, um, you know, there's really very little oversight. We have a, a BC Hydro report to the BC Utilities Commission that should have come in for the first three months of this year that has yet to be filed and may offer a lot of insight onto the true status of the project. But what is needed right now and what many have said for years is that we need that BCUC review of the finances, which is what everybody has said along the way should have occurred and never did. We need to make sure before we continue spending more billions of dollars that the billions of dollars that we've already spent has been rightly, you know, done so. And I, I really personally, I don't think that we've done that. And I think we need to give BC Hydro ratepayers that assurance to avoid um, big surprises in their rates down the road. The one, and we only got a few minutes left here, but uh, the one, and really quickly, is there any capacity to get that done in a six-week review, which I think is a key question? I actually emailed the BC Utilities Commission myself um, a few weeks ago because during the election I was very upset with John Horgan. I was very upset with the stance that they were taking. I am firmly of the belief that we need to have a tools-down order during this review and, you know, pay the workers, be fair, pay them their wages during this. And should the project not go forward, there will be an incredible amount of remediation work and other projects in the area. Um, But yes, it is, because what happens that this review, um, and what I was told is that, you know, one, right now they don't have a mandate to do it because it was legislated exempt, so that needs to be addressed. But they can be given a very specific scope of questions to look at. And really what we need to look at right now is how much has been spent, look at the cost economics of it, should we continue building it? Because there's no sense in throwing, you know, five, six billion dollars more if we really don't need this project and if it's actually going to have a very adverse impact on hydro rates. And I'm not even speaking residential rates. We already had a situation last year with Pult Mills where corporations were actually stating that um, they couldn't pay them. And so they couldn't pay their bills. The province had to step in and they said, you know, okay, this is the problem. So if we continue with this and the rates continue to go up, how many other companies are going to be complaining of power rates, mines, mills? Those are all job projects there. So it's not just as simple as looking at Site C in terms of jobs. We have to look at the impact of what the increasing cost on hydro rates is going to have on thousands of other jobs around the province. Yeah, good point. Layla, we're fresh out of time. Thank you for joining me. That was a fascinating discussion. Uh, I look forward to having you back down the road on the show. Awesome. Thank you very much, Shane. Have a good weekend. You as well. That's political blogger and uh, political observer and blogger, uh, Lila Ewell, joining me on the show here at Inside Politics. Uh, I'm off on holidays for three weeks after this. Guest host Terry Lake will pick up the show uh, next Friday here on Inside Politics and Radio NL. We'll see you then. Local. First, CHNL, AM 610 in Kamloops, RadioNL.com, the Valley's first choice for local news.